This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, finally here. Week one of the NFL season. And Ronnie, you know what that means. Fantasy football, baby. That's right. It's everyone's fantasy. It's the football season has begun. And the Red Zone Channel will be back on getting everyone the stats. They can track everything so that everybody ends up being a first ballot Hall of Famer. It's great. That's what I love. Red fantasy zone. football, hyperactive football fans watching the Red Channel like me. Hey, Gooseman, you in the league? Nope. Haven't played since the 1990s. Unlike the Patriots, I got tired of winning. <laughs> Oh, Clark, oh, man's talking me. smack without a team. Excuse <laughs> me. How about you, Ron? Uh, nope, I have enough trouble balancing my checkbook and keeping track of uh, real football stats, so uh, this other stuff would be beyond me, my abilities. If you have trouble balancing your checkbook, welcome to our league. Please join. You still have time. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm in a league. I've been in one in San Diego for the past, I don't know, 30-some years, mid-1980s, and I've always been with former Hall of Fame voter Nick Cannibal, who's been on the show many times. And guess what, guys? This year we got the first pick for the first time in, I guess, like 20 years. So guess who we took? I would hope it's Leonard Fournette. <laughs> it was not. Oh, no. We took Ellie. Todd Gurley of the Rams. Oh. Todd Gurley, yeah, no-brainer. Offensive player of the year for a team I think that could make it to the Super Bowl. But, uh, Ron, I did not choose Chris Hogan from your New England Patriots. No love. But, no love for but Hogan. That's okay. Well, it's no, it's okay because guess what? We have him here with us today. Yeah, he's here with us today, and just in time. He's our Hogan hero. He is <laughs> for, for last-minute fantasy football drafts and geeks like me. Uh, we also have award-winning journalist Andrea Kramer of the NFL Network and HBO's Real Sports. Andrea was just inducted into the Hall of Fame as a Pete Rozelle Award winner, as well as Hall of Fame voter and best-selling author Gary Hurricane Myers to talk about the best New York Giants goose man. Not, I said, not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Plenty of quality candidates. The Marlboro Man, Charlie Connerly, Spartan Carl Banks, and first-time eligible, Chris Snee. Chris Snee, BC's own. Tom Coughlin's own. Well, almost his own. You guys did, you didn't mention home. George Young. George Young, guys. I bet he's going to mention him. Anyway, you think? Well, yeah, I do. <laughs> A lot to get to today. But first, we've got to take care of business. So we're going to. We're going to commercial. When we return, it's Khalil Mack and more on the coming season. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, uh, what better way, guys, to introduce the 2018 season than with another mention of Colin Kaepernick? Yeah, Colin Kaepernick. Well, somebody finally signed him. But it wasn't one of the league's 32 teams. Nope, it was Nike, which reportedly has given him millions of dollars to run a Kaepernick brand ad campaign. I think it's the Just Do It campaign. And, Goose, uh, it's funny. Just when you thought the national anthem issue was no longer an issue, well, there's this. My guess is uh, I think this is going to rattle out of cages of Park Avenue. How about you? Clark, I believe Nike is the official shoe of the NFL. My guess is the yeah. NFL will be headed back to Reebok soon. Yeah. Now, did you tell, see what Jerry Jones said? He said nothing. <laughs> I've always respected Nike because he can't say anything. Um, well, I'll admit, I mean, I'm not a big fan of this move, but um, 
I'll also say it's it's to me out of the box thinking by Nike. Now it already has some people burning Nike jerseys and shoes and has affected the stock. I think it's gone down. But um, Ron, I've got to believe it's going to catch on with others and maybe a lot of others who see this as Kaepernick versus the man. Plus, it gets people talking about your product. Well, sure it does. And let me tell you, these networks that are burning their shoes today, we buy new ones for three hundred dollars uh, uh, in a week or two. That's just uh, you know, as my mother would say, penny wise and pound foolish. Um, but, you know, and I, th- I think Nike sees it, and, and they're hoping people see it as Kaepernick versus the machine. Uh, uh, no one has the authority to make you stand when you want to sit in America or sit when you want to stand. It's what makes America still great, not needing to be great again. And well, I think that minute, Nike Ron, grabbed it. Ron, are you calling me a nitwit, or should I just put that fire out right well, now? Well, that depends on what. Yeah, I go, yeah, I thought I smelled some rubber there. I was like, oh, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> How much those things cost you? It's not my Brady jersey. First off, <laughs> you, you want to burn your shoes? Go, go take them to a homeless shelter. You know, how about that? I burn my shoes every time I run, Ron. <laughs> yeah, I've seen you run. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sort of reminds me of the fights you waged in your career, too, you know? Yeah, <laughs> Ron versus only. the machine. Yeah, as the machine chewed me up and spit me out a few times. But that's, uh, you know, I paid a price <laughs> or two, as you guys know, for what I believe is right. And, uh, 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 never a price as large as Kaepernick has, has paid. To be fair, my guess is he never thought he'd be blackballed out of football in the first place. Right, right. Uh, and look, all three of us know, regardless of our, what our positions might be on the anthem or on Kaepernick, all three of us know there aren't 96 quarterbacks uh, right now better than he is. That's just nonsense. Uh, but like the ad says, you believe in something, even in the cost you everything. It's a good ad if one adds uh, that makes sure what you believe in is worth the price. And uh, Kaepernick seems to still think that it is. Although he needs a history lesson, which our man Armando Salgado gave him once again on Fidel Castro. He is, he is oh. ass backwards on Fidel Castro. He is ass say. backwards. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. But he's made more of a name for himself doing this than he did through football. But uh, anyway, that's the way it goes. Hey, let's move on. Um, I, I want to cut to the quick on the season. And, Goose, I want to go to you. Um, what in the world are the Raiders or, or – <laughs> John Gruden up to? I mean, bad enough that you've got a 6-10 and 10 team that's the oldest in this year's game, but – they just traded away their best player, Khalil Mack. Goose, what do you make of what Gruden's doing out there? Well, he's trying to remake the Raiders in the image of his last Tampa Bay team. A bunch of old guys with aging stars. Gruden's <laughs> been away from the sideline for nine years. The game has changed. I think the change has shocked Hall of Fame coach Joe Gibbs when he tried to come back, and they will shock Gruden. You can't win in 2018 like you did in right. 2002. The players are younger. The game is faster. He inherited a team with the two key pieces already in place to contend right. for championship, the quarterback and the pass rusher. Now he's given away one of those key pieces. Yeah, and he had a franchise wide receiver, too. So, um, anyway, I, I saw where he said something about $90 million guaranteed is, quote, an astronomical number and that Mack had priced himself out of the Raiders' picture. Except, um, as someone tweeted, this is a franchise, your franchise, Ron, your Raiders, yes. that gave a TV analyst who's been out of the game nine years, as you mentioned, Goose, a $100 million con- uh, dollar contract um, to coach the team. And, and to me, if, if, if you have a great player, you find a way to keep him. I mean, the Packers did it last week, Ron, with Aaron Rodgers. The Giants did it with OBJ, and the Rams did it with Aaron McDonald. So... What does this tell you about the greatness of your Raiders? <laughs> well, uh, if Al Davis was still around, they would have done it too, I can assure you of that. Uh, Al must have told me a hundred times, or he told me once, every play is replaceable, not if you don't have a replacement, and they don't. Right. Uh, you know, Gruden comes out and says, uh, you know, their best hope is a rookie, Arden Key. Uh, well, 
to me, uh, that's not much hope. Uh, last time I saw him, he saw him was a year ago at LSU when he was in marijuana rehab. Uh, I mean, it's like not what we're looking for, as Coach Belichick would say. Uh, so that's, the, as I say, not a lot of hope. Uh, look, everyone's looking for a guy who can get to the quarterback uh, like Mac. And Oakland had one and let him walk over money that yeah. in two years yeah. is going to look like a bargain. So uh, they tra- They used to train in El Segundo, and apparently they're being coached by El Stupido. <laughs> well, it's funny you said that uh, Al said every player is replaceable. The first thing I think of is Marcus Allen. What do you do with Marcus? And he was replaceable, except he wasn't. Right. <laughs> he didn't go to Kansas City. Hey, uh, Ron, yeah, but Ron, not for a long time. He kept him in the, in the Yeah, no, that's right. Game, he sat and him. He, and he won games when, you know, uh, at the end when they needed him, when he didn't want to put him in, but he did anyway. So I mean, But he also said. Gruden also said he had, quote, nothing to do with this, unquote. Yeah, you believe that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Were his lips moving? If so, no. <laughs> if I'm paying my coach $100 million, he better have some say in everything that can possibly go right or wrong with my football. <laughs> <laughs> well, Goose, let's move on to Chicago, who's got Khalil Mack. What does this do for them other than sell tickets? Well, it makes the NFL's seventh best pass rush and tenth best defense that much better. Mm-hmm. Mac gives them teeth to rush that, uh, and that gives the Bears a chance in a division that features quarterbacks Aaron Rodgers, Matthew Stafford, and Kirk Cousins. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, Goose to me hit on the point. With the quarterbacks in that division, you better be able to knock them down or harass them, uh, make them feel uh, uncomfortable. And I can tell you, the minute they heard Khalil Mack was in Chicago, those other quarterbacks began to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> hey, Goose, does this mean the monsters of the Midway are back? No. Uh, you still have to throw the ball on offense and run it. And uh, Well, they can run it with Howard Howard, but uh, the, the jury's still out on the passing offense. All rise. Here comes the judge. Well, that's the signal that the monster of this midway is back. That's me for my turn to back for this week's State Your Case. And it's a bit of a reach, guys. But uh, if you would, please be patient. I'm pushing former Cardinals place kicker. Jim Bakken, as I did this week on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. But I'm pushing him for a conversation, uh, not for inclusion in the Hall of Fame, but for conversation because, well, because I think he's deserving. Um, And full disclosure, I'll admit I was a Jim Bakken fan as a kid, and there were two reasons. One, I liked the Cardinals' uniforms, and two, I always trusted this guy to make big kicks because he did. In fact, he made so many of them, he was named to two. That would be two all-decade teams, the 1960s and 1970s. And there are only two other kickers who can say that, Morton Anderson and Gary Anderson. And Morton's already in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And that's partly why I threw Bakken's name out there. Because after 51 years of having one specialist in the hall, we elected two in the past five years, which means selectors are more willing to listen to their cases. But, you know, Jim Bakken's worthy. I mean, he is Hall of Fame worthy. He's a four-time Pro Bowler, two-time All-Pro, who led the league twice in field goal accuracy, twice in field goals, and led it in scoring once. And when he retired, he was the third-highest scorer in league history and, and still is the highest score in Cardinals history. But to me, there was more to him than just ability. Ron, there was availability, too, as you always That's pointed key. out. Um, Jim Bakken still has the Cardinals' record of 234 games, a mark that Larry Fitzgerald can tie if he plays all 16 games this year. Now, look, was Jim Bakken one of the most accurate kickers of all time? No, he wasn't. But as league historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal pointed out, and a friend of the show, um, he was the most accurate of all the straight-on kickers of his era, and he made a bunch of clutch kicks. No, he didn't have great range, and no, most selectors either don't know of him or won't give him the time of day. But this is what I keep coming back to. He was considered one of the game's two best kickers for two decades. And that's not only remarkable, Goose. 
it should be enough at least at least to have him discussed as a Hall of Fame candidate. So, Clark, which of the square-toed guys do you like? Jim Bakken, former NFL MVP Mark Mosley, or Tommy Davis? Geez, I thought you were going to ask me about Tom Dempsey when you said square-toed guys. Um, I'd probably lean toward Bakken. I mean, even though Mosley was a league MVP and slightly more accurate for his career, but Bakken was chosen in more Pro Bowls, was a two-time all-decade choice, and neither Mosley nor Davis, whom I think, honestly, goes of as a better punter than a field goal kicker, were one time were, were one time all decade choices and, and, and that's a difference maker to me um, anyway I, I'd love to see Jim Bakken get his time in front of the voters but uh, I'll be honest guys, I think there's a better chance than that's winning the pennant anyway we're going to go to commercial but when we return you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network this is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we were talking about the Raiders and John Gruden in the previous segment, and I almost forgot to mention they just acquired A.J. McCarron as a backup quarterback, which is no big deal, except, well, except A.J. McCarron goes to a team that just hired Brent Musburger as his play-by-play announcer. And I know what you're saying. Well, so what? Well, so Brent is a big fan of McCarron. Except it's not Mr. McCarron, it's Mrs. McCarron, as in Catherine Webb, the former Miss Alabama who A.J. wed. Now, if you remember, or maybe you remember, that broadcast Musburger did several years ago when McCarron's fiance, that would be a now wife, Catherine Webb, was in the stands. Do you remember that, guys? you remember it? Sure. Who could forget it? Yeah, well, if our listeners don't, this is what it sounded like. Back into the game. Now, when you're a quarterback at Alabama... You see that lovely lady there? She does go to Auburn. I want to admit that. But she also, this Alabama, and that's A.J. McCarron's girlfriend, okay? And right there on the right is D.D. Bonner. That's A.J.'s mom. Wow, I'm telling you, quarterbacks, you get all the good-looking <laughs> women. Ah, it's a, what a beautiful woman. Wow. He's, A.J.'s doing Whoa. Some, some things right down in So if you're a youngster in Alabama, start getting the football out and throw it around the backyard with pop. Okay, Ron, you weigh in here. Well, it sounds like uh, Brent might have had a point, although the way he expressed it sounded like he was reading a script from an early Madman episode. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you, he's lucky that didn't happen last year. He'd be hashtagged to death. He'd be hashtagged right off the hashtag Brent. (laughs) Wait till Brent sees football's fabulous females. I, th- I think he did a couple years ago in Alabama. Um, well, I'm sure you guys noticed that Brent was one of the first to chime in on the acquisition of McCarran, and he said in a tweet, quote, Welcome A.J. McCarron to the Raider family. Can't wait for the beautiful Mrs. McCarron to join <laughs> us in Oakland, unquote. The guy's got a death <laughs> Yeah, well, Brent, got two words for you. <laughs> Restraining order. Yeah, I think we've already given Brent as much discussion as this topic deserves. Why don't you weigh in further? <laughs> Brent is uh, uh, if Brent makes it to the season I may be uh, it could be a rush uh, him or the weed head who's what's who's what's going to get blown out of the Raiders first yeah exactly well okay let's move on from Brent we'll uh, accede to Goose's wishes here um, as most of you know 2018 is a year with midterm elections, and we here at the Talk of Fame Network have always always Ron as you know respected the political process we have yes, in fact, we respect it so much that we indulge in our own town halls, where we have Rick and Ron telling you just what they think about what's going on or has gone on in the NFL. It's what we call our residential debate, and it's backed by popular demand, as in our 
boss is popular demand. They tell us what to do, and yeah, we do it. So, Goose and Ron, you know the drill by now. We did it last year or a couple of years ago. I'll give you a topic, and one of you has a chance to respond to it. No more than 45 seconds, please. And the other has an opportunity to make a rebuttal. No more than 45 seconds, please. And then our first speaker has 15 to maybe 30 seconds to make a closing statement. Any questions, guys? Goose, Ron? Got it. Okay. Let's get started. We're going to start with you, Rick. If you're the NFL, and in partnership with Nike, as you mentioned before, what do you say or what do you do about this latest Just Do It ad campaign featuring Colin Kaepernick? Very simple solution. You remain neutral on the subject. The NFL is trying to distance themselves from the anthem and Colin Kaepernick controversy. With an impending trial coming up, the less said by the NFL, the better. Then, when it's time to negotiate the next shoe and apparel deal, you leave Nike and you return to Reebok or Adidas or Skechers or whoever. That's the power the NFL has to pick its financial partners. And right now, given this political stand, Nike is heading out the door. <laughs> Wrong you are, my friend. They just extended that contract for eight more years for $1.1 billion. They ain't going no place. Which is why if I am in the NFL's shoes, I say to myself, Self, we're getting a billion bucks from these guys. I don't give a damn who they hire or what they say. Show me the money, honey. That's how it is in the NFL. That's how it's been for a long time. And uh, they're going to take their money and sort of gently turn and look the other way and say, well, I didn't see that ad. I missed that ad. I was out of town. I was entertaining friends. Didn't see it. But I took the check. Your turn to close. In eight years, it's goodbye night. (laughs) And there he is, ladies and gentlemen, the closer. (laughs) Now it's on to you, Ronnie. Yes, sir. Pittsburgh's running back, Le'Veon Bell, that would be former Spartan Le'Veon Bell, did not report to training camp and did not sign his franchise tender. How many games will he play this year, and how effective will he be? The clock starts now. Well, I think he did the same thing last year, did he not? And and he was there in time to collect that first $908,000 game check. So uh, maybe he misses a week uh, because he's still recovering from the Labor Day weekend parties at the most. But I think at the the minimum he plays 15 games, and he probably, frankly, ends up playing uh, 16. And he'll rush for another 1,200 yards like he did last year. Look, they haven't changed the playbook. They haven't changed the quarterback. They're still going to stick the ball in his belly about 265 times, and he's going to run with it like a scalded dog So, because he knows that's how he's going to get paid next year. So I don't Who's think that's to work. It's good to see that Ron has jumped aboard the Spartan bandwagon. I agree completely. In 1993, <laughs> Emmett Smith missed the first two games of the NFL season in a contract holdout. He returned to not only win the NFL rushing title but also the league's MVP award. It's not going to be like Bell has to get himself in shape. It's not like he has to learn the offense. It's not like, it's not like he has to get back in the flow. The great ones never leave the flow. If and when he returns, he'll be fine. Mariana Rivera, time to close. <laughs> well, I, I don't have to close because we are, like, singing the same tune, the Gooseman and I, which seldom happens. He's a Spartan marching band at this point. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> he had a great education there at Michigan State. He must have gone to graduate school someplace else. <laughs> I miss that marching band. Where are they when we need them? Spartacus. Okay, Go- Gooseman, we're back to you. Sam Darnold, that'd be USC Sam Darnold, will be the only rookie quarterback to start the season opener. But when the year is over, and I mean when we're talking February, which rookie quarterback will we be talking about then? 
I still like the immense upside of Josh Allen, but I'm not sure the Bills have an offensive line that can protect him, so it's going to be tough to throw from your back. So I don't see him having the type of rookie season that puts him on the Pro Bowl track, regardless of his talent. The guy I'm going to keep my eye on is the first overall pick of the draft, Baker Mayfield. I trust John Dorsey, and he put his reputation as a talent evaluator on the line by deciding that Mayfield had the best future in this quarterback class. I like the fact the Browns are not playing him right away. I think they may, that may come back to harm Darnold. Uh, Mayfield showed in August he can make the throws, make the plays, and he has the best weapons of all those young quarterbacks. So come February, the word is going to be Baker. Ron Borges. Well, uh, I do, uh, as Goose Ben, I do agree with him. I like uh, Josh uh, Allen's upside. Unfortunately, if he's playing this year, we'll see more of his backside, which <laughs> exactly. is uh, <laughs> not, not a good thing. Uh, I actually like uh, uh, uh Mayfield's chances as well, it's, even though he is, he makes Doug Flutie look like Shaq. Uh, so that worries me. But Cleveland has a strong defense, uh, believe it or not. Uh, they're getting better if they can keep uh, uh, Josh Gordon for, out of the weed factory. I mean, <laughs> you know, they'll have a weapon. And I think they're going to let Tyrod Taylor play for a little while and get a terrible beating. Uh, and, and then the, you know, they can ease Baker Mayfield in there later in the season. And I think for this year at least, I think he's got – uh, the best short-term upside. Uh, long-term, I still like Josh Allen. Craig Kimbrell, your time to close. Two for two. Ron loves the Spartans, and he loves Baker. <laughs> Where's that band? Come on. <laughs> okay. Ronnie, back to you. Yes. When Australian John Millman upset Roger Federer in the fourth round of the U.S. Open, he had to said he, he said he had to get up the next morning at 7 for his fantasy football draft. But he said he wasn't sure whom he was going to take. Todd Gurley or Le'Veon Bell. So please help him out and tell him who to take and then tell him why. Well, I tried to help you, but you didn't listen. I uh, did not. Leonard Fournette! <laughs> Look, Jacksonville's going to hand that ball to him a lot more often uh, than they're going to put it in the hands of the aerial challenge Blake Bortles to chuck it around. Tom Coffin loves to run the ball. So does Doug Marone, the coach. Frankly, uh, if he's smart, Bortles is going to love it too. The guy won seven games last year in which he threw for 150 passing yards or less. Why is that? Leonard Fournette! Give the guy the ball. He had 268 carries last year. He scored nine times. Got over 1,000 yards. His legs are still fresh, although they won't, they won't be much longer the way they're going to use him down there. I say run with him now before his legs turn into silly putty in another year or two. Gooseman. Clark, Nick Canop and I agree it's Todd Gurley. He did yeah. last on touchdowns last season with 19. When I was winning all those fantasy leagues in uh, the 1990s, it was about the touchdowns. <laughs> He'll be a year older, a year wiser, a year better playing in this offense, a year more confidence in that offense. He, also, he almost had his first rushing title last season. Had he not sat up the finale, he would have won that. He's the best running back in the NFL. That's why you take him first. Ron Borges. Boy, I just don't see it. I don't see it. I like Fournette. And, I, you know, I'd even go with the, with the rookie, uh, Saquon Barkley, before I would uh, go with Gurley. Look, they got a, cause a lot of weapons out there. And they're not going to just keep giving the ball to him, giving the ball to him. If that quarterback starts playing the way they think he can, what do coaches and offensive coordinators want to do? Show how smart they are. And they don't look smart just handing it off. They look smart throwing the ball. Okay. We run in our fantasy league. <laughs> we do. But, Goose, I've got a clue for you here. It wasn't Nick Canepa who said take Gurley. Nick said, 
Who do we take? <laughs> of course we did. Pick the draft. I said we take the best player on the board, Todd Gurley. Oh, okay, we take Todd Gurley. <laughs> That's what he said. He had no idea. But the thing like is, the because <laughs> it does sound like the Raiders. It sounded like maybe Ron Borges was in that room. He would have said Leonard Fournette. But because the draft was last week, of course, one of the guys early said, we're going to take McKinnon, running back from San Francisco. Uh, isn't he Ouch. hurt? Well, yeah, and then this weekend, that'd be a torn ACL. Adios, muchacho. Nick wanted Melvin anyway. Gordon of the Judases, right? <laughs> That's right, exactly. He went early, too. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to have an opportunity to uh, ask why nobody took Chris Hogan of the New England Patriots, because we have him with us. Yeah, he's in the house, and he's going to join us right after this. This is the Talk Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, one time it seemed unlikely that Chris Hogan would become one of Hogan's heroes. I don't know if Chris would remember that, but there was a famous TV show in the 1960s. I certainly remember. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, undrafted in 2011 after a college career where he played more lacrosse than football, Chris was signed and released by three NFL teams before finally settling in Buffalo late in the 2012 season. And then four years later, as a standout receiver for New England, he was breaking Deion Branch's record for most receiving yards by a Patriot in a playoff game when he had nine catches for 180 yards and two touchdowns in the AFC Championship defeat of Pittsburgh. His story might not be exactly rags to riches, but it's definitely, definitely unknown to well-known. Chris Hogan, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Chris, the, um, I'd say the obvious question is, um, how does someone who plays one year of college football at Monmouth and then is released three times in a matter of months end up playing in back-to-back Super Bowls. What, what kept you going those first two years before the Phil, the Bills finally gave you a chance? Um, I mean, I think I, I, just the, my overall belief in my ability to play in the, in the league. I think, uh, you know, my first, my first taste of it when I got into, when San Francisco after the lockout ended, um, just being around the guys and, and, you know, just seeing what it takes to kind of play in this league. I really believed that, that I could do it. Um, and given the opportunity, I think that I could prove people, a lot of people wrong that I could do it. And, uh, you know, I was very, I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate to, to be given a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, some didn't, didn't work out, but, uh, they were, you know, they were just, you know, bumps in the road. But, you know, I, I learned a lot from all the places that I've been and, uh, Buffalo gave me a, a great opportunity to play and, um, you know, just kept working hard. Reggie Bush kept calling you 7-11 on the Hard Knock Show, HBO Tape with the Dolphins. He said you were always open. How aware of all that were you at the time, and why do you think Reggie could see what the coaching staff could not? Um, I mean, that was kind of like an interesting time. You know, the Hard Knocks, uh, you know, it seems like they're always kind of looking for that underdog story 
uh, you know, something to film. And, um, you know, to this day, I think that was probably one of the best camps I've ever had. And, you know, I, I really just, you know, I came in there and, you know, no one really knew who I was. And, um, you know, I just worked, worked my butt off every single day and just tried to get noticed and tried to do whatever I could do to, to make a football team. And, you know, it just so happened that, you know, I, I was, you know, showing up every single day and making plays and, um, you know, Reggie, you know, was on, caught on, uh, you know, had the microphone and called me 7-Eleven and, and all that. And that, you know, got a lot of exposure and, um, you know, I think it, I think that, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, that it really kind of put my, put my name and myself on, you know, kind of on people's radar. Um, and really helped my career, you know, and, and, and at the end of the day, you know, I, I was cut from Miami, but I got a lot of exposure on hard knocks and, um, you know, people kind of saw what I was, I was capable of doing just on the, from the show. And, and, uh, I think that, you know, it could have led to some more opportunities down the road. Hey, Chris, I want to go back to something you said at the outset, and that was that uh, of all those places, of those three places where you started and, and didn't catch on, you learned a lot from all of them. Is there yeah. one of those teams where you got the most significant lesson? Is there one of those places where you look back and say, that's where I grew the most? Uh I mean, I, I would say, I mean, you know, once I got to Buffalo, I mean, you know, it was from, I was able to be there for four years. And, um, over those years, I really, I really grew as a player, um, you know, on, you know, whether it was in special teams as receiver, you know, really just learning the ins and outs of trying to be a professional football player. And, um, you know, that was something that, I needed to, you know, constantly constantly work on whether it was how I took care of my body, um, you know, how I, you know, practiced, how I watched film, you know, all of that stuff. Um, you know, that was that was huge for me. And 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 Buffalo, I learned a lot in, in, when I was there. The time you got to the Super Bowl in, against Atlanta, you've been in the league for five years. Was there any reflection on your part how unlikely your rise had been? You go. From- <laughs> cross player to starting in a Super Bowl and being paid a chunk of cash to do it. Did, did the enormity of all that hit you at some point that week? Um, not definitely not that week. <laughs> you know, there there was a lot a lot going on that week, and um, I think you know I went after the Super Bowl and you know maybe a week after. Um, you know, I didn't have much time to reflect on it. My twins were born about a month after the Super Bowl, so I was, you know, knee deep in that. But, uh, you know, just reflecting on, you know, my journey and how I got to where I'm at today, it's, uh, it's definitely was uh, an underdog story. You know, a lot of people didn't think I'd be in the position that I am today. But, um, you know, I believed in myself. I believed in my ability to play, and I just, I got a lot of opportunities and. Um, you know, when I got those opportunities, I knew that I had to make the most of them. You know, because you know, you know, like a lot of guys know in this league, you know, their your opportunities are far and few between, and and when you get them, you really got to take advantage of them. And I thought I did a pretty good job of that, and was able to, you know, have, you know, take advantage of those in Buffalo, and then you know, when I came to New England, and I, you know, playing the Super Bowl, I mean, you know, I mean, I couldn't couldn't have written the story any better. Now this summer, it's a season of change for the receiving core in New England with. Uh... Julian Edelman spent it for the first four games. You're going to be the leader of a group of guys relatively unfamiliar to Tom. How different and difficult has the summer been getting everyone on the same page? Um, 
it hasn't it hasn't been difficult. We're just we're really working hard. Uh, we're really working hard to to work on that quarterback the receiver trust, um, and that's something that doesn't happen overnight. And you know we know it. Tom knows it. I know it. And you know, we just have to continue to you know to work hard. And you know whether it's in practice, it's uh, in the meeting room, it's. Um, you know, us uh, on the on the side of practice, you know, working on extra kind of stuff, and you know, every single one of those guys that has you know that's new to the team that has come here has done a really great job of you know studying their playbook, knowing what to do, how to do it, and at the end of the day, you know, just going out there and trying to make plays. But when it comes down to it, Chris, you're the guy, the veteran who's got some experience with Tom. And we look out there and you go, well, we got Chris Hogan back. I mean, Adelman's not going to be back for four games, but we've got Chris Hogan there. Is there additional pressure on your shoulders? I mean, do you feel as if um, a lot of people are looking at you as, okay, uh, he's the guy who's got to pick it up here in the, in the wake of the departures of some players in the absence of Edelman? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm trying. I don't really want to put any of that, you know, extra pressure on me. I, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm going to go and do what I've always done, and I'm going to go out. I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to try. To, I'm going to be accountable. I'm going to be available. Um, and when my number's called and I get the opportunities to make plays in the game, I'm just going to go out there and do that to the best of my ability. And you know, the rest of it will take care of itself. We have a lot of great football players on this team, and a lot of guys are going to step up into you know big positions each week and. Um, you know, just really excited about the guys that we have on this team. How demanding is Tom? Um, you know, I mean, Tom is, you know, he, there's a lot of ins and outs of, you know, how uh, our offense and a lot of detail and, um, you know, he plays very close and uh, very close attention to all of that detail. And um, I think he... He expects, you know, he, he sets that uh, a high level of expectation for his receivers and, and guys to, you know, to study the game plan and study the routes and, and know how to defeat certain leverages and, and, you know, how he wants certain things done. And, um, you know, I think all the guys that play with him, you know, know the, the expectations and, um, you know, they just work really hard to, you know, be on the same page as Tom. Chris, because the expectations are so high and the success is so complete and and so high, how difficult is he to please? <laughs> you know, if you go out there, you do your job, you catch the football, you get open, um, he will be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Good way of putting it. So we we hear all the time about how complicated the Patriots system is for receivers and how much of it requires recognition on the run. Is that different basically from what you saw in San Francisco, Miami, Buffalo, and maybe the Giants too? But is that different from what you saw elsewhere? Yeah, I, you know, it's, you know they, the, the offense here, um, you know, there's just a lot of detail. Um, you know, some places, you know, this might be more than others. Um, and I think they just expect guys to kind of learn, you know, uh, conceptually and the whole, thing, you know, why we're doing things. And, and they have, you know, putting different, you know, people in all different spots. And uh, if you're able to kind of study that and learn it, um, you know that you can it can slow the game down for you uh, it just it takes time you know you really have to put some effort and you really got to take the time to study and learn the offense as a whole and you know try not try to learn one spot but try to know all the different spots of the offense yeah this summer you've seen veteran receivers like Eric Decker Kenny Britt Jordan Matthews Malcolm Mitchell come and go in a hurry you've been asked yourself to leave by three teams that probably now wish they kept you 
I know you're a pro, but does that aspect of NFL life ever become disconcerting or discouraging? And how do you cope with that? <clears throat> um, I mean, you know, I've, I've I've been around this league long enough to know that it's you know that your your career can be short lived. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of people that are working really hard to be in the position that you're in today, and you know, you can, you know, you can be replaced. I mean, that's just kind of the, the, the bitter truth of it. And, um, you know, I've seen a lot of guys come and go and, and you know, the guys that, you know, get, you know, that stick around, I think are the guys that really just study, um, you know, they're always doing the right thing. They're doing their job. Um, they're making plays. And at the end of the day, you know, obviously being available is a huge, is a huge part of, you know, sticking around the football in the national football league, you know, taking care of your body and, um, always being out there on the practice field, being available in games. I mean, that's, you know, that's a big part of, you know, extending your career. Chris, what advice would you give someone uh, who is in the position that you were, a young receiver who believes in himself, works hard, and yet can't catch on and takes a year, maybe two years? What advice would you give someone like that who says, you know what, I don't know if this is the profession for me. I believe it is, but I can't seem to catch on with somebody. You did. Um, yeah. You tell them? It's, um, you know, there, there were definitely, you know, there's a lot of highs in my career and there's been a lot of lows. And, um, you know, I would say, you know, it's it's one thing, um, you know, you really, obviously, first and, for, first and foremost, you have to believe in yourself. Um, you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in your ability. You can never, it's, you know, you can't take any days off when you're trying to make a football team or try to get out of roster or try to get, you know, just a chance or a workout. I mean, there, there are no days off at this, that, you know, that's, you can take days off when you retire or whatever it is, you know, when you're trying to make a football team. And, um, you know, I think, you know, surrounding yourself with the right people, the people that believe in you and people that are going to push you to, you know, continue to follow your dream. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate enough to have a lot of people surrounding me that believed in me and what I was trying to accomplish. Um, and that was, you know, part, you know, definitely helped me, you know, keep working and keep working harder no matter how many times I was cut or told that I wasn't going to be able to do this. Uh, those people definitely pushed me in the right direction. And when you get your opportunity, you just have to make the most of it. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, you know, the opportunities are, you know, they don't come very often. And when you get the opportunity, you just, you really have to put your best foot forward, make the best of it, and, you know, try to prove to people that you belong and, and can play in the National Football League. Well, you certainly made the most of your opportunity. Chris, thanks so much for the time, and best of luck with the season. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Chris. That was New England wide receiver Chris Hogan. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. SB Nation AM. Boy, everybody loving the Browns and what they're doing. Tell well, they're they... winning the Super Bowl, Tony. Same old Browns. They're man. winning. No, they're winning the Super Bowl this oh, year. Oh, I know. That hard knocks will make anybody look great, won't exactly. they? Exactly. You get Lee Schreiber narrating your story, it'll make no matter what you do. They're in. It's like I already have them. I've had my bet placed. I pinned rather... them in. Yeah, like Lee Schreiber was like, Tony D has a relatively boring life. Outside of the radio show, he watches two kids and sometimes makes himself a sandwich. And people would be like, I want his life! I bet that's the best sandwich in the world. With a wife that's constantly telling him to clean his car and not to be such a slob, he goes to the car wash to vacuum his vehicle, which has not been done so in the last six months. 
and be like, wow. Let's hear more about that sandwich. SB Nation AM with Tony D. Weekday mornings from 6 to 9 Eastern on SB Nation Radio. If business, pleasure, or sports fandom takes you to Houston, Dallas, Austin, Fort Worth, or San Antonio, check out CultureMap.com to get the scoop on the local favorites. From the best restaurants, bars, pubs, and clubs to the biggest sights and sounds each city has to offer, CultureMap has it all. Just head over to CultureMap.com. The expert team personally reviews and visits each spot to make sure you get the best experience. And if you're coming back, sign up for free CultureMap updates at CultureMap.com. This is the Sports Grind. Super Bowl week. We're on Media Row. We're doing our show. Some pretty young ladies going around taking pictures with everybody. And I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, who? And so she has a handler, okay? So stupid. I go up to her handler because now she's at, she's doing an interview on the show that's sitting behind us. And I go up to her handler and I'm like, who is she? Why is everybody asking her to take pictures? And she says, oh, that's Miss America. And I say, whoa, I had no idea. Damn. And I'm like, oh, okay, so who are you? I'm her mom. And I'm like, damn. And guess what Rudy J does? Don't know her from a can of paint. I'm the person she's getting mad at because guess what I did right after I didn't admit it, I didn't know who she was. Can I take a picture with her? But that was a real douchebag moment for me. Tune into the Sports Grind, weekdays from 3 to 5 Eastern, only on SB Nation Radio. SB Nation AM. You got a lot of good clubs down in Houston for Carmelo Anthony? I have no idea. Because I know they didn't have any nightlife. I'm married with children. I I don't know anything (laughs) that happens at night. I get asked that all the time where I live. Oh, man, what are the bars like in downtown Nashville? It must be fun. I'm like, how would I know? You see this on my finger? I ain't going to no bars in downtown Nashville. I hear people have a good time. I I heard they're awesome. SB Nation AM with Tony D. Weekday mornings from 6 to 9 Eastern on SB Nation Radio. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're back, though not for long, because... That's the two-minute warning. Yep, it's time for the two-minute drill. Gooseman has it again this week, so Ron, Rick, us, all of us, let's get going. Who fleeced who in the Coyle Mac trade, the Bears or the Raiders? Not sure who got fleeced, but I am certain who got flushed. John Gruden, come on down. The Bears get a recent defensive player of the year. The Raiders get unknowns. I'll go with the known. Bears roar. Aaron Donald and Cleo Mack both received record contracts last week. Donald for $135 million. Mack for $141 million. Which team will get more bang for its buck? Neither. Not enough bang for that many bucks. I think it's not much to pick between these two guys, uh, but I like the dissatisfied Ed Rusher with something to prove over the guy who just got a money hug from his own team. So I'll go with Khalil Mack and the Bears. Speaking of whom, Khalil Mack, Tom Mack, or Mack the Ninth? Connie Mack. Only one of those guys has a yellow Hall of Fame jacket. I'm with Tom Mack. Come on down. What message were the Cowboys sending in cutting Dan Bailey, the second most accurate place kicker in NFL history? That they're going to miss the playoffs again. The message is, miss five of the last field goals, including a 23-yarder in the season finale against Pittsburgh, and make $3 million when the other guy's making 400000 As Clark would say, adios, muchacho. <laughs> exactly. 
Did Giants GM Jerry Rice make the mistake in 2017 of drafting quarterback Davis Webb, or did then-coach Ben McAdoo make the mistake of not playing him? That'd be Jerry Reese, not Jerry Rice. Jerry Reese! He's one of Reese's bad pieces. One reason Jerry's now unemployed. I'll bet on Ben McAdoo. That guy made a lot of mistakes. This had to be one of them. How much gas is left in the tank of 38-year-old tight end Antonio Gates? No gas, just fumes. As Jackson Brown once said, running on empty. Exactly. Not enough for him to be asked to make the drive from San Diego to L.A. 16 times. <laughs> a quiz. Who allowed the fewest points in the NFL this preseason? Easy. Khalil Mack. Nobody scored on him. <laughs> the Brownies proving once again that neither stats or exhibition games mean anything. That's the end of it. That's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. Andrea Kramer, Gary Myers, and Borges or Bogus coming up in the next 60 minutes. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network, the kickoff edition to the 2018 season. I'm Clark along with Rick and Ron. And there was a lot of attention, and then think rightly so. Given to the funeral last week of former Arizona Senator John McCain. I'm not sure you listened or watched any of it, but I did, and, and it was powerful and, and frankly educational. But um, there were many memorable speeches, but one in particular I like to mention here because it, it really got to me. Um, and we are a football show, and that was Arizona Cardinals wide receiver Larry Fitzgerald. I mean, he was one of six speakers at McCain's memorial service in Phoenix. And he delivered a eulogy from McCain, whom he first met in 2006, that I thought honestly was terrific. Uh, with Fitzgerald saying, quote, we are all better for having known you, unquote. And, Goose, uh, I'll be honest, I, I, I think that only enhanced the respect I have for Larry Fitzgerald off the field, always have liked him off the field, because on the field, as you know, uh, in response to your poll question I mentioned to you last week, he's my favorite receiver in today's game. Yeah, only one wide receiver in NFL history caught more passes. And what I really like about his career track is that he's done it all with one team. I'd be surprised if Fitzgerald does not retire as a Cardinal. Yeah, I think that's uh, more than likely that's the goal, uh, although we hear that a lot. And then uh, somebody asks you to retire, and you don't want to retire, and next thing you know, you're playing for the Indianapolis Colts. But uh, <laughs> hopefully that won't be the case with with him. Yeah, it was, it was a great and quite moving uh, speech. I thought it was pretty interesting. It said a lot about both guys, I think, that here yeah. you've got an 80-something-year-old you know, uh, prisoner of war guy and uh, and a pals with a, a black professional athlete with dreadlocks i mean that's what america's supposed to be man you know that's, yeah, that's right that's what it's supposed to be well I, I don't know how many more years he's going to play larry fitzgerald but guys we got to get him on this show i mean he's going to be i can't say it ron so first ballot hall of famer <laughs> <when he came laughs> that's right there you go there you go thank Come you on. very much but i think it fits here because this is a guy who's done everything the right way for a club that struggled to make anything happen really until he and kurt warner got there yeah, I know you're right. Look, he'll end his career probably as second in receiving yards, second or third in catches, top five or six in touchdowns. Can you write the history of pro football without Larry Fitzgerald? Yeah, you can, uh, but no one cares about that anymore. Look, if Jason Dale is a first ballot Hall of Famer, Larry Fitzgerald should be a no ballot Hall of Famer. <laughs> well, anyway, nice job, Larry Fitzgerald, again. Nice job. And join us here someday, please. All right. Up next, 
It's Hall of Fame voter Gary Myers on the best New York Giants, not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. If you listen to this program this year, you know that we're doing a best player not in Kansas series, and we're doing it alphabetically. And now, in honor of the U.S. Open, we're going to New York and the Giants with Hall of Fame voter and best-selling author Gary Myers here to give us his nominations. And Gary... He's got a book coming out in October. It seems like he's always got a book coming out called How About Them Cowboys? And it's a inside look at how the Jones family runs that operation. But anyway, Gary, um, look forward to reading that and always, always look forward to having you join us on this program. Welcome back. I think you have more visits to us. Ron has frequent flyer miles. Great to hear your voice. <laughs> how you guys doing? All good, thanks. Okay, Gary, um, let's cut to the chase right off the bat. Who's the most deserving New York Giant? Not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Oh, are we talking player or just all encompassing? Either, because, either, okay, either. Then, then you know, I've I've been saying for years, and you guys know this, that I think that George Young deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, the former general manager who who got here in 1979 took over a team that hadn't been in the playoffs since 1963. And the next 12 seasons, they, uh, they won two Super Bowls and he, he took over a completely dysfunctional operation and, and turned it around. Of course, you know, with the help of great players like LT and Banks and Sims and a Hall of Fame coach with, with Bill Parcells, but it was really George who set the direction of the franchise, um, when he took over with two owners, Wellington and Tim, Tim Mara, who weren't speaking to each other. So it was not a, an easy, an easy, an easy task, and, and you know, considering the Giants' importance to the NFL, um, I, I really think with the job that he did uh, is deserving of being in the Hall of Fame, and hopefully, in the next year or two, that will happen in a contributor category. Well, Gary, uh, you know I don't disagree with you. I'm, I'm with you on this. I mean, I've been part of four of the five contributor debates, and I know how highly consultants and some voters think of George Young. To me, as you said, what he did for one of the league's flagship franchises was exactly, exactly what Green Bay GM Ron Wolf did for another, and that's put it back on track, get it to the Super Bowl, make it stable again. And Ron Wolf was one of the first two contributors we put in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And to me, what George did was huge. I mean, one voter said to me one time, well, you know, I think it wasn't all George. I think it was more about Bill Parcells. Well, maybe, but guess who chose Bill Parcells? And guess who chose Bill Parcells' players? It was George. Uh, I mean, I 100% agree, and probably more than 100%. I think that this, George was so important to the Giants, and then later, as being the football fo- voice uh, when he went to work in the league office, I really think this category could have been named for George. Uh, no less have um, a, a handful of of general managers who were all very deserving, but I think that George should have been first in the list. I think that he should have gone in and had Napoleon and Wolf and Bobby Beathard. And now, you know, if Gil Brandt gets the votes in February, I, I could have easily made a case if I was on that committee that George should have been the first one to go in. He's the only one who was a finalist as a modern era candidate, got far enough in the process that uh, he just needed 80% of the vote to get in. Uh, I'm not quite sure. This is before I was on the committee. I'm not sure what the objection was to George at that point. But seeing how close he came when he was um, a modern-era candidate, the fact that the special uh, category was uh, 
uh, put in place, I, I really think that George should have been the first one in. Again, not to denigrate anything that the others have accomplished, but I just think um, George uh, was more deserving and accomplished just a little bit more. Okay, Gary, let's move on a couple of players. Carl Banks was an all-decade selection for the 1980s, but he's never been discussed as a finalist. So what's the disconnect here? Well, Rick, I, I, I think, you know, I got Carl on the ballot a couple of years ago after, you know, the first few years I was on the committee. Uh, he wasn't even listed when we would get those 75 names. And, um, you know, I called the hall and told them I wanted to nominate Carl and try to get some momentum going uh, and to at least get in the room so we can talk about him, you know, before his 20 years of eligibility are up. But I, I got like Everson Walls. I think if we had started discussing him years ago, rather than his 20th and final season of eligibility, that he might have made it. It just was too much. He was coming from too far back in just one year to get in. And I, I'm concerned that, you know, Carl might never even reach the place where we talk about him. And, you know, playing with, with LT and Harry Carson for the first part of his career with Harry and then LT for most of his career, um, Carl was overshadowed. But he did so much of the dirty work of covering the tight ends, playing the strong side, freeing LT up to, to do what he did, which was better than anybody in NFL history. But he might not have been as great if he didn't have Carl on the other side. And um, he was instrumental in the Giants' two Super Bowl victory seasons. And um, I'm hoping some momentum picks up for him uh, in the next couple of years. Okay. More recently, Chris Snee is a first-time eligible. Is he Hall of Fame winner? As a, I don't know. It's, it's, don't think it's, it's hard with guard, I think, unless he's considered, you know, a generational player like a John Hanna or a Gene Upshaw, or, you know, somebody like that, uh, to really, you know, jump to the front of the line. Now, Chris was a great player, and I think he is a Hall of Fame player. And he played on, on two Super Bowl championship teams. And, and I don't want to... You can't downplay how difficult it must have been initially to play for Tom Coughlin, who was his father-in-law, was his father-in-law, and the awkwardness that present, you know, uh, that caused him again just initially until he can establish himself uh, within that locker room. So I think he overcame a lot that. Other players just don't ever have to deal with, and then he just turned out to be a great player. So, yeah, I, I would say Chris, you know, and the one guy I was going to bring up that nobody talks about is, and he, I think he would have been in already if he didn't end his career prematurely after the 06 season, is Tiki Barber. Because in his last three seasons, he had over 2,000 yards in combined offense each year. Um, in his second to last year, he rushed for almost 1,900 yards. His final season, he rushed for 1,660 and had over 400 yards receiving. And Tiki was a late bloomer. He was just getting better as he turned 30. And then he wanted to become, you know, a TV star, and, and he left. I, I think if he had another two or three years, like his last two or three years, that he would be in the Hall of Fame already. I think he can still make a case so much for him, although I know, um, you know, he's been on the ballot and has never, to my knowledge, even reached the final 25. Uh, Gary, one guy who always comes up uh, in these kinds of conversations is Eli Manning. He won two Super Bowls. Mm -hmm. um, quite frankly, in my mind, he also was pretty ordinary for half his career as well. Uh, and Jim Plunkett has the same sort of issues, really. Won two Super Bowls, but for much of his career, mm -hmm. uh, didn't do a lot. Uh, what do you see going forward uh, f likely to happen uh, when his name 
comes up. Well, Ron, you know, Eli's had the most bizarre career in that he played 14 years in the league, and the only seasons in which the Giants have won a playoff game are the two years that he won the Super Bowl. (laughs) He didn't win a playoff game, or hasn't to this point, in any other season, which is... It's almost hard to believe. But as far as I'm concerned, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. And the difference between him and Jim Plunkett is that Eli, uh, in the final two minutes of two Super Bowls against the Patriots, uh, the 2007 team, which was undefeated and would have gone down as the greatest team in NFL history if they finished off that game. He took them down the field and scored the winning touchdown. And four years later, he did it again. Um, I, I put a lot of emphasis with quarterbacks on Super Bowls, uh, at least Super Bowl appearances and, and more importantly, Super Bowl victories. If the definition of a Hall of Fame player is a quarterback going against maybe you know one of the two or three best teams in NFL history and going right down the field to get the winning touchdown and then against a really good team four years later and doing exact same thing. I mean, what do we want from Hall of Fame quarterbacks but at the most important moments of their career to play their best and and defeat you know teams like the Patriots had those two years. So I, I know he's, he's had a real up-and-down career, but you know in my mind, he had a much better career than Kurt Warner, and I think Kurt got in maybe the third time. Um, I, I, just, I just think – I think Eli's a first ballot Hall of Famer. I really do. I know there's going to be a lot of discussion about that when we get around to talking about him, but um, to me, you know, he's separated from the Jim Plunkett's. And I don't know, is Plunkett the only guy with two that's not in? I, I'm throwing a blank right now. But, um, yeah, I believe he is. I believe he is. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody looked at those teams, those Raiders teams, and said that Jim Plunkett carried them to Super Bowl championships. There were other elements of the, those teams that. I think were more important than the quarterback in those Super Bowl games. Eli was the most important player that the Giants had. I know the defense was tremendous, especially in the first game against Brady, but um, it was Eli who came through down the stretch and, and pulled out those games. And I, I think, to me, that, that that's good enough to get him in. Well, Gary, Eli may be coming, but we's going. We're out of time. <laughs> Thanks so much. And we'll look for you on the station in a couple of, well, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe next month, because guarantee we're going to want to have you back to talk about your book. How about them Cowboys coming out in October? That'll Thanks be again, great. It's, it's, always, it's always a pleasure to be on with you guys. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Gary. That's Hall of Fame voter Gary Myers, and this is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I'm sure you guys caught it, but there were a couple of noteworthy retirements the other day, including one by the guy Goose that you covered, and that's former cornerback Terrence Newman, who finally called it a career at 39. Newman? He called it a career. Yeah, Newman, yeah. He just turned 40 this Tuesday, but God, it's remarkable. And, and he's now joined the Vikings. Um, the team he was playing for as an assistant coach. So, Goose, uh, as I said, you covered him. How should he be remembered? As an incredible physical specimen. The guy didn't get to the NFL until he was 25 years old. Then he plays 15 seasons and yeah. almost makes it to, to the in, at pro football's toughest position into his 40s. Only four cornerbacks started more games than the 205 of Newman. And all four started their careers well before the age of 25. They also finished up in 42 passes. So there was some quality in addition to the quantity that starts. Yeah. And, and Ron, I, I mean, I think he should get at least some kind of award, as Goose mentioned, for lasting as long as he did that position. I mean, 39. And, and for being one of only two cornerbacks in NFL history, this is a little history lesson here. Deion Sanders is the other. To have two interceptions in one game at the age of 37. 
Let's give this guy some kind of reward, Ron. Yeah, no, look, I, I agree with both of you guys. If you can still be competitive uh, at arguably the most competitive position in the game at that yeah. age, is a lot more impressive than a 41-year-old quarterback who can't be touched uh, still playing well. You know, corners have to run, they have to turn, uh, they they have to be agile, and when the law allows, uh, they actually can hit somebody, uh, and you got to do that too. And that's hard enough to do at 29. It's nearly impossible at 39, uh, although uh, Terrence Newman argues otherwise. Wait a minute. Was that a veiled shot at Brady? Come on, Ron. Say was it? No, there's other four old quarterbacks. Drew Brees is an Jeez. old quarterback, very productive quarterback. He's not a 41 year old. Probably better than, eight Super Bowls. Probably better than Tom uh, Brady, but you know what's that? Uh, right? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, Gooseman, um, I remember 2003 draft. You and I were sitting together in uh, Radio City, and the Cowboys took him with the fifth pick. Did you like it then? I can't remember. Did you like that pick? Well, as a guy who gave the Cowboys Newman in the mock draft that year, I, I did like the pick. He was perceived as a shutdown corner. He lived up to that billing in Dallas with a pair of Pro Bowl selections. The only negative at the time was his age, but you can't ask for much more than about a seven- or eight-year window of excellence from any cornerback, and he mm-hmm. played at a league level for about nine years. Okay. Well, as I said, there were two noteworthy retirements, and there were. Uh, Newman wasn't the only guy who called it quits last week. Ron hit it. Newman! Newman? <laughs> um, so did former pass rusher Elvis Dumerville. Uh, yep, Elvis has left the building. True story. Retiring last week at the age of 34 after a career that included 105 and a half sacks, five Pro Bowl selections, two All-Pro teams, and one year, that would be 2009, where he led the league in sacks. Ron, um, to me, he's a Hall of Very Good guy, um, but I'm sure there are going to be some people, and there probably already are, um, who are going to be calling for him to be enshrined again. Oh, sure. First ballot Hall of Famer, I say. Everybody is, you know. Uh, not really, but uh, look, he was a disruptive guy for much of his career, which is pass rush is really the main role, not so much sacking the guy, is just causing chaos. Uh, but I tend to agree with you, though. I never came away from ever watching him thinking, boy, that was a Hall of Fame performance, let alone a yeah. Hall of Fame uh, player. Good player, really good player. Uh, you know, like to have him on your team. Player uh, would play if he was on your team, uh, and, and and be productive. But Hall of Fame, um, I've never come away feeling that. Uh, but someone will argue for him. Well, it's it's an old argument by receivers. The one that well, I had more catches than Lynn Swan. Mm-hmm. The Hall has become a statistical analysis. Dumervil yep. has more career sacks than Elvin Bethea, Charles Haley, Andre Tippett, Fred Dean, Leroy Selman. But the Hall should be more than about stats. It should be about impact. And that's how we have to judge Dumervil, not by the stats. Goose, just following up on that, the Hall's essentially become a fantasy football league, hasn't it? That's and that's exactly what I think. Right. That's exactly uh, right. It's in some right. corners of that room it has, that's for sure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> Those are the corners we don't sit in. Goose, you're, you're the draft expert. I, I remember Dumervil as an undersized guy who had one of the best collegiate careers anywhere in 2005. NCAA record, 20 and a half sacks and 10 forced fumbles, and was a unanimous first-team All-American selection. I, I remember um, how highly a lot of people had him rated going into the draft, but I don't remember how highly you had him rated. Where did you have him standing in that draft? I did not have him rated highly. I had him as an undersized guy who lacks speed as an edge rusher, and I had him in the sixth round. He hmm. led the NCAA in sacks with 20 as a senior, but 15 of them came in the first five games. He wore down in a 12-game college season, so there were legitimate concerns at the time that he could hold up for a 16-game NFL season. He could, and he did. Yeah, well, you know what I remember about him most, Ron? It was something that actually didn't happen on the football field. 
He was at the negotiating t- table. Do you remember in 2013 when his agent faxed some documents to the Broncos like six minutes after a deadline? Right. Uh, and, and, and that would have that, – that deadline was to restructure his contract. But instead, because they missed it, it made his contract fully guaranteed. And then the Broncos, who uh, were in salary cap jail, said, you know what? <laughs> we got to release him, of course, and he signed with Baltimore. But it's really one of the most bizarre negotiations I can remember. And to me, it was reminiscent of that Terrell Owens saga in San, San Francisco when he ended up going to Baltimore. No, they going, went back to San Francisco and they ended up going to Philadelphia. Really weird. Yeah, no, it was weird, and uh, and this one actually worked out uh, for Baltimore and for uh, uh, Doomer, really. I mean, he, yeah, right, he right. Uh, two years after he got the, he had 17 sacks, which tied his career high. He was an all-pro player again. Uh, you know, it's funny how many times you think uh, something is the end of the world that, that's happened to you, and actually opens up a whole new world for you, as it did for, for him in uh, Baltimore. Well, anyway, good luck to both Terrence Newman and Elvis Doomerville. It was a pleasure watching him. Um, Goose, I want to follow up on uh, Gary Meyer's conversation early because I, I want to explore the contributor options for the future. You and I are on that committee. Um, Gary, of course, is an Art George Young fan, and there will be one contributor candidate in 2020, as there will be, I believe, for the foreseeable future. What do you think the chances are that George is that guy? Well, both Bob Kraft and George Young have had support in the room in recent meetings. I think Paul Taggart remains in the mix, and I would mm-hmm. hope Bud Adams, Buckle, Kilroy, and Steve Sable get stronger consideration. But at this point, I would think Kraft and Young are the two front-burner candidates. Do you want an owner or do you want a GM? Ron, I know you're not on the contributor committee, you're on the senior committee, but if you were, if you were there with Goose and me, who would be your, let's just say, three finalists for the 2020 spot? Uh, well, i got three guys. Uh, you won't be surprised by one of them. Uh, Bucko Kilroy, Bill Nunn, and Joe Thomas. They're all solid, solid, solid personnel men who built great teams, drafted great players, built great teams. Uh, in Bucko's case, however, uh, to me, he's the best candidate available, period. He was also an all-decade player in the 40s. He coached in the league before he moved into personnel. Uh, and I think he you know, he was there for about 60 years. He, he had the greatest quote ever given about a player when I asked him about uh, who, what running back he liked best in the draft. He said, I like that guy Bonaparte. I said, who? He said, the guy at Navy, Bonaparte. He meant Napoleon McCallum, of course. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure how a guy can contribute more than Bucko Kilroy. But those would be my three, uh, Bucko Kilroy, Bill Nunn, and Joe Thomas. Goose, there was a lot of discussion this time, as there is every year, about former Commissioner Paul Tagliabue, and I don't, and, and I'm not going to get into it. Um, but he's an intriguing case because I, I think he's going to be elected someday, and maybe it's sooner rather than later. But my question is, when is that day? I mean, he's been rejected three times as a Hall of Fame modern-era finalist, including once when he was one of the last six candidates. And I think that was 2007, I'm not sure. But uh, in any case, he was voted down two years ago as a contributor candidate. So, Goose, you're in that... Room, you're on that committee. When do you think Paul Tagliabue was proposed again as a contributor finalist? Well, I think it's a few years down the road when there's more turnover on the selection committee. You know, the current body has made it quite clear over the last several years we do not want Tagliabue in the Hall of Fame. But new voters can give his candidacy fresh, a fresh set of eyes, fresh look, and can decide then if he's worthy. But I'm not sure if any of the three of us are, will be around when that time comes. Yeah, you agree with that, Ronnie? Yeah, um, I think uh, that to me, it, it just smells like an end run. You know, <laughs> he's had a bunch of shots uh, in there, uh, and, and he, ha- he hasn't gotten in. You know, and, and to me, it's going to take about six or eight heart attacks, uh, and then no institutional memory, which is slowly filtering in there. And when that happens, then he's going to have a chance. But uh, by then, I'll be on the wrong side of the lawn. I have six or eight heart attacks every time I hear that sound because it means it's time for Ron Borges with his Borges are bogus rant. It's time aimed at a surprising subject, at least for him surprising. Let's hear it, Ronnie. 
John Gruden must still think he's on TV, where he can talk like a coach without actually having to be one. Three days after trading away two-time All-Pro, three-time Pro Bowl selection, and, and former defensive player of the year, Khalil Mack, Gruden told the disbelieving media in Oakland and his disbelieving players, we're going to do everything we can to win this season. Apparently, in his judgment, the first order of business was to get rid of his best player, which leads me to one word, bogus. <laughs> in this era of all-out passing, every team in football is searching for two things, a quarterback who can throw it and someone they can count on to disrupt the guy when he tries to throw it. The Raiders had one of the most disruptive pass rushers in the game, and Khalil Mack was averaged over 10 sacks a season in his first four years. He registered over 10 each of the past three and made guys around him in silver and black look more formidable than they actually are. That performance led Gruden to conclude Oakland couldn't afford the $90 million in guaranteed money that Mack wanted after the signing of the Rams. Aaron Donald established the ceiling for such players. To boil it down, the Raiders concluded it is better business to pay $100 million to a 57-year-old coach who hasn't blown a whistle in nearly a decade than to pay the best pass rusher in the game to make officials blow their whistles to avoid quarterback decapitation. Bogus! Coaches have value, of course, uh, but Gruden is no Bill Belichick. His overall 11-year record produced only 54% wins, and if you look further, you'll find that after winning a Super Bowl with Tony Dungy's team in Tampa, he then went 45-51 and 51 with them in his final six years before being sent packing. That has led Raider owner Mark Davis to conclude Gruden is worth $100 million, but Galil Mack isn't worth 90. My conclusion? Let me repeat myself. Bogus. <laughs> Gruden then made matters worse when he claimed he didn't want to make the trade and was not involved in the negotiations to the point he didn't even know he was giving up a second-round pick to get two ones and a three. If that's true, it's bogus. If it's not true, it's truly bogus. Now he insists a rookie Arden Key is the key to all this. He says Arden Key, it's Arden's Key's time. Last time I saw Arden Key, he was in a marijuana rehab and then showed up at LSU and had a lousy final season because he looked like he'd been training on Oreos. My guess is this is going to go up in smoke, and that ain't bogus. There was not bogus, Ron. Andrew Kramer's here. Yeah, she's here, and she's waiting to join us, and she will right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, there were a lot of Philadelphia fans at the Pro Football Hall of Fame's induction ceremony last month, and yes, most of them were there for Brian Dawkins, who was part of the class of 2018. But some of them came to honor another class of 2018 inductee, and that's award-winning journalist Andrea Kramer, who was named this year's recipient, I think it was the 30th ever, of the Pete Rozelle Radio Television Award, given annually to that person who makes, quote, exceptional contributions to radio and television in professional football, unquote. And I can think of no more worthy candidate for that award than today's guest, the exceptional Andrea Kramer. Andrea, first of all, congratulations, and secondly, thanks for rejoining us. Well, first of all, Clark, thank you for reading that just as I wrote it. I mean, seriously. <laughs> but I feel like I'm on with football journalistic royalty between the three of you. I'll take this triple team anytime. But actually, you know, I'll tell you something funny. In my little Hall of Fame acceptance speech, when I said something about growing up in Philadelphia, there was this kind of nice little roar of the crowd, and I said, as I told Brian Dawkins, he is the consummate Hall of Famer, but only one of us is from Philadelphia. So I don't know Ooh. if that's a good thing to admit or not. <laughs> 
Did they boo you for that? Because Philadelphia fans love to no. boo. No. No, I didn't get booed. I got even more cheers. Go figure. They've probably been drinking or something throughout the evening. <laughs> yeah, I think. What? <laughs> Good chance of that. Philadelphia fans? No. Okay, Andrea, um, first question. When you were first told that you'd won this award, what was the first thing or the first person that you thought of? Wow. Well, that's, that's a serious question, Clark. Um, I thought about my parents who were both passed away. Um, they were actually the first people that I thought of. But the, 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 the first thing that I actually said when David Baker called me was not dissimilar to sort of what, what the great Gil Brandt said or, you know, it's pretty much thought about when, uh, when he was just gotten, uh, when he just was received the news that he was uh, one of the contributor nominees. But I basically, I basically said to David, holy you-know-what. And I said, I guess it's good that I'm saying that here and not when, uh, you know, we're actually uh, in camp. But I was just shocked. I, ironically, I was on a shoot for Real Sports. And you'll, you guys will actually appreciate this. I was on a shoot for Real Sports. And it was the day that Terrell Owens had uh, come out and said that he was not going to attend the Hall of Fame induction. So I see this t- uh, email. Or excuse me. I get this voicemail from David. And he says, David Baker. And I'm here with Pete Fierley, who's the chief of staff, and, and Joe Horgan. And we wanted to talk with you about something. Give us a call back. So I figured, hmm, you know what? No Charles Owens. They probably have extra time they're going to need to fill. Maybe they're going to want me to, you know, host a roundtable with players or something, which I've done at the Hall of Fame before. So I had no idea. I was pretty much blindsided in the best of all ways by the announcement. And, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's actually how I, how I found out, and that was my reaction. Well, since you mentioned your parents, I want to ask you about your love of football because I know it dates back to when you were growing up in Philadelphia. And I think a lot of people figure it was your dad uh, or your family who got you interested in the game. But as I understand it, it was actually the other way around with you introducing your parents to the game. Is that right? Well, you know, my, my as, as you know, Clark, having a beautiful daughter, you want to encourage your children in whatever they're interested in. And... I was always interested in sports, and I was always interested particularly in football. And so my parents, instead of trying to direct me away from that, they really supported that. And I remember that my mom bought me a book when I was really young called The Pro Style, and, you know, I had books, and and then I wanted to go to the games. And and when Veterans Stadium opened in 1971, my dad got season tickets, and we started to go to the game. So I think that they were really – they were just really supportive of that. They didn't think that that was too weird of a thing. And – I didn't get to tell this story in, in Canton or anything, but uh, one of the things that I would do when I was probably starting at about 11 years old, the week of the Super Bowl, I would cut out all of the, as, as all, print, as all uh, good print journalists, I hope you appreciate this story, I would print out, the, I would cut out uh, all the Super Bowl-related clips from the Philadelphia Inquirer, the now-defunct Philadelphia Bulletin, and the New York Times. I would paste them on these kind of big pieces of construction paper. And the morning of the Super Bowl, I would basically make this presentation to my parents. It was basically like a scouting report. So I was either doomed to be a journalist or a PR person. But, um, you know, again, they didn't think that that was a weird thing. They, they thought that that was okay and, um, and, and really supported me on that. So, uh, yes, that, that story is true, actually. I, I pretty much got my parents, uh, I think I, I turned my parents onto it more than they did for me. How soon did you comprehend the historical significance of this moment going in with Shireen being uh, a female doubleheader? Well, I, I, 
I, I'm thrilled that Shireen and I went in in the same year. And as I said to her, I said, uh, the NFL does many things that are politically correct, that they try to be politically correct at least. Uh, but I don't think that anyone could say that uh, two women were going in because of any kind of political correctness. I think that our resumes and our longevity speak for itself. So I was really, I was really proud of that. Um, on the other hand, you know, there's there's the flip side of that, which is, yes, Leslie was and should have been the first woman honored back in 2006, and then Shireen and I are honored this year, and then at some point. It's, it's got to be, you know, that we're just talking about the best journalists that are going in, with, whether they be print or, or radio and television, and, and stop talking about, you know, the gender issues. Uh, me, for me personally, uh, and I thought about this based on, I mean, I heard from so many people. It was, it was unbelievable. I mean, I would hear from producers that I haven't worked with in 20 years, and they were texting and saying, gosh, I hope this is still your cell phone, but I just had to congratulate you, and, and, and hearing things like, uh, I'm better at what I do because I worked with you, and, and, and I take my quote-unquote tree very seriously, just like a Bill Walsh does or a Bill Belichick or, or a Mike Holmgren or something like that. I take my tree seriously. But one of the things that uh, I realized really made an impact for people is being the first working mother so honored by the Hall of Fame, because that's what I would hear, and I hadn't thought about it in these terms. You showed us that it can be done, that it was okay to go through a football season pregnant, have a, a child, and, you know, uh, still be able to cover the game of football and travel each week and go to games. And I hadn't thought of it in those terms until I started hearing from a number of different women. And, again, I think any time that you think that what you're doing can impact other people in a positive way, I think that's really the most powerful and meaningful thing of all, and that's one of the things that I really took away from this experience. Okay, what was the best piece of advice anyone ever gave you during your career? The best piece of advice anyone ever gave me? Well, interestingly, it's a piece of advice (laughs) that I probably didn't take for like, oh, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, (laughs) which was... Basically, um, try to enjoy the moment when you're in it. And that is sort of antithetical to the way I've always approached things. You're only as good as your last story. You're only as good as your last interview. What's next? What's the next project? It's always next, 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 which doesn't allow you to really enjoy what's happening now. And I I was always told that, and... I never really was able to abide by it until the sort of seminal moment, Rick, in 2008, when I woke up the morning that Michael Phelps was on the cusp of becoming the first uh, Olympian ever to win eight gold medals in a single Olympics. And I wake up in Beijing, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, wow, you know, I'm going to be this teeny tiny little piece of history since Michael's going to get out of the pool and walk over and start and talk to me. And I said, I need to take this in. And I did. And that was a real kind of breakthrough for me. But that, that had taken 
a really long time for me to be able to absorb some of that. And it's, it's advice that I pass on to, to young people today while full knowing that I'm being a little hypocritical because I didn't take that advice. But I think it's, it, that, that's really important because if you can't enjoy moments like this, and by the way, I cannot tell you how many emails I got from friends going into Canton basically saying this, please enjoy this, please enjoy this. This is no different from the players. This is, you know, lifetime achievement. This is the highest individual honor you're going to achieve. Please enjoy this. And I'm happy to report that I did. And I did because I was surrounded by people that were so important to me in my life, you know, my family and my close friends. You've had, as we, as we all know, one of the reasons you got this award is you've had so many memorable uh, stories, uh, Andrea, that you've been involved in. Uh, what story or experience uh, of all the ones you've done jumps to mind when someone says, what was your favorite or what was the one that moved you the most? Well, it's it's such a hard question. It's like if you have multiple kids and, and you're, you know, which one do you like the best? It's just, it's really, really hard. Um, because if I go through that sort of mental Rolodex, if you will, there's so many ones that, that come up for, for different reasons. I mean, it could be stories that were so cathartic for the people, uh, that were telling it. You know, Joe Juravicious, the, uh, winning a Super Bowl with Tampa and, uh, you know, his infant son dying 40 days later. And I'm still to this day the only person he's ever, he and his wife have ever talked to about it. And so, you know, a story like that is, is really meaningful because you know that it, how much it impacted their life. You know, Chris Carter, the first time that he ever talked about his drug and alcohol addiction, uh, you know, I wasn't expecting it that day that we sat down for our interview, but that was a really meaningful thing. Uh, you know, those, those come to mind. And then, of course, because I have had the pleasure of covering much more than football, you know, I think about so many of the stories that I did for real sports uh, on, you know, uh, the abuse of the drug Toradol. You know, people had not even heard of Toradol. Uh, and we did a really story on it, really, uh, really pulling back the curtain on, uh, on a drug that was used routinely, as all of you guys know, throughout NFL locker rooms. Um, and then, of course, there's a story that, which I'm really proud of, on um, also for real sports, on sexual assault in Bikram Yoga, which was a, an extremely powerful story. Uh, you know, we worked on it for, for, my goodness, close to a year. And, you know, again, um, I knew we were going to make news with it, and I knew that it was going to be a very powerful piece. But one of the most uh, meaningful things was HBO was contacted by sexual assault and domestic violence experts and advocates saying that they were putting our story on their must-watch must list because they wanted people, you know, they wanted people to be able to, to understand what was going on in this industry of, of Bikram yoga. So there's been so many stories and so many different kinds of stories. Um, and then, you know, not, we're not even talking about the events that I've covered, like the Olympics or, or the, the Super Bowls and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, you know, growing up a huge Dolphin fan and uh, actually being at the at the game when Don Shula, uh, you know, became the all-time winningest head coach with 325 wins, which was in my home city of Philadelphia. So, so many things come through my mind. Um, and the bottom line is just, you know, boy, you know, how how grateful I am to, to have been in all these positions. And really, I guess most of all, to know that you get an honor like this and my career is still going strong, that, you know, the sine wave is not, uh, is not descending yet. That's, that's really important to me. Well, we're happy about that. 
Yeah, we, your <laughs> we career are is still going that. strong. We are happy about that. Unfortunately, we're unhappy about it. We've got to go. Our time is not going strong. We're running out of it. But, Andrea, thanks so much for the time, and congratulations again on having your name forever on display in Canton. Well, thank you so much, guys. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always really, really, really enjoy and relish the conversation. Hope to do so again soon. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks Andrew. Andrew. That was Andrea Kramer, this year's winner of the Hall of Fame's Pete Rosell Award. Up next, it's Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, Shay, uh, would you do me a favor and blow that whistle that's next to you? That's the Two Minute Warning. Great, thanks. That means it's time for the Two Minute Drill with Rick calling the shots. Gooseman, get your engine started. The Browns finished the 2017 season 0-16 and have now lost 17 consecutive games. Will they win a game in 28? And if so, who will they beat? Yes, they will. Second game of the season versus the JETS Jets. I can't believe we're going to actually uh, agree on something. Yeah, when they see the Jets, they'll be smiling in the dog pound. (laughs) Which coach is sitting on the hottest seat entering the 2018 season? Jason Garrett. Temperatures in Dallas the other day were over 100. I think it's Cleveland's Hugh Jackson. You can jump in the lake only once to save your butt. Next time, you go in with cement sneakers. <laughs> Who will be the surprise team in the NFL in 2018? Brownies. They could quadruple their victory total the last two years. Uh, 49ers, but for all the wrong reasons. They're about to learn Jimmy G is no Tommy B. Ooh, I like it. Which game are you most looking forward to watching in the NFL's opening weekend and Why? New England-Houston, because you can never get enough of Tom Brady. Well, you're half right, as usual, Clark. Uh, uh, Texans and the uh, Patriots, because that Texan defense can get after you. And they got the kind of uh, quarterback back who gives the New England defense fits. Upset special. Norm Van Brocklin's opening day passing record of 554 yards has remained on the books for 67 years. Which quarterback has the best chance of breaking that record this weekend? Who do you think I'm going to say? Come on. Brady! A, because he's Tom Terrific, and B, because Houston just worked out four DBs. <laughs> Forget Brady. Drew Brees. 67 years old. Exactly. Drew Brees, all he does is throw things around. He throws plates around the kitchen. Not counting Nick Foles, which NFL team has the best backup quarterback this season? Cleveland. They have the first pick of the draft from Baker Mayfield. That's easy. Jacksonville. Their starters are backup. <laughs> How many games, quarters, or even passes before Josh Allen replaces Nathan Peterman as Buffalo's quarterback? That'd be one series, or after Peterman sacked three times. <laughs> well, as I recall, last year you opened with five interceptions in like the first five minutes of a game, so my guess is ten minutes. Alabama or Tampa Bay? Bama. But don't ask me about their quarterbacks. Crimson Tide rolls over the Red Tide. Which NFL team will Jim Harbaugh be coaching next season? USC. Cleveland, so he can continue to either harass his brother or employ his brother. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Chris Ogan, Andrea Kramer, and Gary Mars for joining us, Shay Raftis for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any of our podcasts, just go to our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.